Disrupt Podcast. I'm Tom Jackson. And I'm Gabriella Mulligan. Every two weeks, Disrupt Podcast brings you all the latest from the continent's startup ecosystem, plus interviews with special guests. In this episode, we'll get some top tips on angel investing best practices from Zach George, while Antoine Payuso from FinChatBot tells us what they plan to do with their recent funding round. But first, here's all the news from the last two weeks. Given the relatively small size of some African markets, real startup success on the continent can often only be achieved with scale. A couple of key African startups made expansion moves in the last two weeks, with South African startup Sun Exchange, a peer-to-peer solar leasing platform that recently raised Series A funding, beginning its continental expansion with the launch of a project in Zimbabwe. Also on the move is Nigerian social payments app Bundle, launched amid much fanfare earlier this year by Microtraction's Yele Badamosi. The startup, which is backed by Binance, has launched operations in Ghana and plans to be active in several more African countries by the end of the year. Doing the opposite of expanding, however, is motorcycle-hailing startup SafeBodder, which is pulling out of Kenya in a move it is blaming on the impact of COVID-19. It remains operational in Uganda and Nigeria. Eight African e-commerce startups, three from Egypt, two each from South Africa and Kenya, and one from Ghana, have been selected for a Facebook-run accelerator that will offer them access to mentorship and training, as well as the company's technologies and networks. The Facebook Accelerator Commerce is a 12-week non-equity program that supports innovative commerce startups who renew shopping experiences for buyers and sellers. Plenty of funding to report, with a news led by Nigerian fintech startup Kuda. Kuda, which is building a pan-African digital challenger bank, has closed a $10 million seed funding round in order to accelerate its growth and keep up with customer demand. Other big funding news from Nigeria came from Autotech company Autocheck, which raised $3.4 million in pre-seed funding to help it grow its operations and develop its platform. Listen to episode 11 of Disrupt Podcast to hear more about eTopic Pay's plans for Autocheck. Other Nigerian startups on the fundraising trail included Sand Finance, which raised $1.5 million as it publicly launched its decentralized finance platform for credit unions and cooperatives. Nigerian talent outsourcing and incubator company TalentQL which only launched this month and has raised 300000 in pre-seed funding. Other Nigerian startups on the fundraising trail included Send Finance, which raised $1.5 million as it publicly launched its decentralized finance platform for credit unions and cooperatives. And Nigerian talent outsourcing and incubator company TalentQL, which only launched this month and has raised 300000 in pre-seed funding. All in all, a great couple of weeks for Nigeria. Kenyan startups are raising too, with logistics company Lorry Systems announcing funding and support from Imperial, an African and European-focused provider of integrated market access and logistics solutions. Lorry will use the funding to expand its products across Africa. Micro-insurtech startup Turico closed a $2 million seed funding round to scale its operations, while data marketplace startup Karma raised funding from Microtraction, though that deal will see the startup relocate to Nigeria. South African edtech startup The Student Hub has become the fourth startup to secure backing from NASPERS Foundry. $2.9 million to help it expand. Cape Town-based online retailer Yebo Fresh, which delivers food and household goods to communities and organizations, raised a Series A funding round as it prepares to expand Nationwide, while there was also a Series A round for the Joburg-based FinChatBot. More from them later on. Bear with us, more investment to report. Rwandan startup Kasha, an e-commerce platform improving women's access to genuine health, hygiene and self-care products, increased the size of its Series A round to $3 million after securing $1 million from Swedish development finance institution Swedfund. 
Six African tech startups banks funding from Orange Ventures after the investment firm announced the winners of its MEAC challenge. And in Egypt, website builder Wilt raised a $535,000 seed round. Keen to join the party and start making investments in Africa's growing tech space? Angel investing is increasingly popular, but it's not an easy sport. Tom caught up with Zach George, one of the continent's most active angels, to get some top tips on backing early stage tech startups. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Always good to, to chat and glad to be here. Much appreciated. As far as I'm aware, you have a, approximately 50 angel investments uh, across Africa right now, which probably makes you one, well, one of the more active, if not the most active um, individual angel investor on the continent. Uh, just take us through your portfolio, any major successes, any failures so far, and just give us a few extra details. Sure. Thanks, Tom. Yes, I've been in, I've been angel investing in Africa for the last seven to eight years since I first came here in 2010. Um, most of my focus initially was in financial services, fintech, and insurtech for obvious reasons. All one of the strongest bastions of early investment on the continent, simply because the uh, the banking sector in in Africa has not really evolved as quickly as the rest of the world, but it's actually a it's it's created a, a a whole new pocket of innovation in mobile wallets, mobile financing, remittances, um, and peer to peer payments, which is ironically a lot more advanced in Africa than the rest of the world. So most of my initial investments were in the fintech space and insurtech space. What's happened over the years, though, as I built the largest accelerator in Africa, Startup Bootcamp, a lot of uh, corporate partnerships with banks, retailers, insurance companies, and telcos created the need for innovation in other complementary sectors like logistics, transportation, smart cities, health tech, and ed tech. So the, the angel investing that I did uh, when, I, when I first came here, the first few years, has now transformed itself into more... Um, B2B and corporate POC pilot driven uh, investing. So about half of my investments are directly as an angel and the other half are through Startup Bootcamp, which is the accelerator fund that I'm, that I'm a partner at. So uh, the, the broad focus has always been B2B and B2B2C investments, but the sectors have, have remained predominantly fintech and suretech, logistics and mobility. And now, you know, post-COVID, there's been an increased focus I've had on health tech and ed tech. Also, from a regional perspective, the, the, you know, the key markets in Africa are Nigeria, Kenya, and South Africa. But the sort of the second tier markets that a lot of investors are now starting to look at is Francophone West Africa, which is predominantly Cote d'Ivoire and Senegal, and then North Africa, Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia, and Ghana and Uganda and Rwanda. That would be sort of the second tier after Kenya, South Africa, and Nigeria. So, to what extent is uh, angel investing to this scale? a sort of a spray and pray approach or are there any sort of key fundamentals you're looking out for what kind of tips would you offer to to angel investors when it comes to picking a winner 
Yeah, so I'd say if you're a first-time angel investor or have been investing for less than a year or two years, I would really suggest that you stick to your local or regional geography where you can add a lot of value above and beyond just money. Ironically, or contrary to popular belief, angel investing is more about networks, resources, intellectual value add, and value add from a supply, product, and distribution standpoint than just money. Right. So angel investing really should be adding so much more than just so much more value than just money. Um, But if you are new to angel investing, I would strongly suggest you stick to your local regional expertise. The only difference being if you are, for example, someone that's a veteran in the financial services industry. And if and, and let's say hypothetically, if you're based in Nigeria, um, it's okay for you to look at a fintech company in let's say South Africa or in Zimbabwe if they're looking at Nigeria as the next logical expansion state. But you're still sticking to your lane from a sector perspective and a geography perspective. Uh, and number two, I would say do not invest all your money at one single point in time. So just because you've had a windfall of, let's say, $100,000 as an individual from whatever you know, source of money you've, you, you've gotten, don't just dump it into five companies, $20,000 each. You want to you wanna tranche your investments over a period of time because you want to account for market cyclicality and ups and downs in the market. So I would strongly suggest angels look at uh, dispersing capital over a, a one-year period. Stick to about two to three investments per year. This is your first rodeo. Um, uh, and, 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 and try and limit your total exposure to angel investments to nothing more than 20% of your net worth. 20%, 20% is a high watermark. Uh, because angel investing is very close to what I do full-time in, in the venture capital sector, I've got a lot of inside information and understandings of how companies grow and scale. So I can do up to 20% of my net worth. But if you're starting off, keep it to 5 to 10% of your net worth. You mentioned that um, your day job, so to speak, is in the venture capital space. Well, what's the difference between being a VC and being an angel investor? Yeah, there are lots of differences, and I'd strongly encourage people to not mix the two of them up. So angel investing is you know, investing into companies that are mostly pre-revenue, some of them a bit post-revenue, and it's essentially taking educated bets on the likelihood of a business achieving product market fit and eventually problem solution fit. So it's 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 giving capital funding to companies that haven't been able to get to a certain minimum targeted monthly recurring revenue to, uh, uh, milestones or KPIs, for lack of a better word. So institutional capital in the equity space, which is obviously called venture capital, typically only kicks in at the Series A level where you get your your first major institutional check. Now, that does not mean that VC funds do not invest at the seed level, but at the seed level, VC funding tends to be mostly um, uh, a nice mix to a VC fund's portfolio and not the core focus of what they do. So the majority of VC funds in Africa, as the numbers have suggested over the last five years, have come in at Series A uh, and beyond. So Series A, Series B, and Series C, where the minimum check size is typically at least $500,000 or more. 
like I said, some VC funds will will have a small part of their portfolio, 10% or 20% into seed investments. But seed investments are typically the, the prerogative or the domain of angel investors, friends, and family, and well, and family offices. So that's the, the, the main difference. In terms of if, if you're looking for benchmarks, the, the classic definition, not the definition, the classic example of when a company is ready for venture capital funding is when you're doing about $50,000 to $100,000 in monthly recurring revenue. Very important point, not once off recurring revenue. Um, so that's and and then at once once you get to those numbers, it becomes almost difficult for angel investors to even uh, be of any significance. You're now looking at checks of a million dollars north, and most I mean you, the, the, there are certain angels that play in that space. They're called super angels, but those are angel investors with a long and established track record of investing. So in more mature markets like Silicon Valley in Europe and Asia, you'll see a few super angels. That will invest fifty to two hundred thousand dollars alongside VCs at Series A rounds, but those are super angels and not your traditional angels that play pre pre Series A. If that makes sense. If you're not a super angel, what, what typically happens at that sort of Series A mark? I mean, do you, you sort of retain a smaller stake in the business, hopefully up until exit, or are you exiting at that point? I mean, what's the what's sort of the, the dream scenario for an angel at that Series A point? Yeah, so as an angel, what typically happens is you're investing in a company that's pre-revenue or just slightly post-revenue, and you will, will likely have the opportunity, and we've seen lots of examples of this, where angels are given the opportunity to get out at Series A or definitely at Series B, because you 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 literally add almost no value to a company and are just sitting on the cap table and making matters more complicated. So a lot of you know very prominent African tech ventures like Flutterwave, like Paystack and Pogo and Sendi and Mcopa and Aerobotics end up having. 25 or 30 people on their cap table at Series A and at Series B. So what typically ends up happening is your incoming lead investor or investors at Series A and Series B will say, listen, I'm going to offer X to buy out these angels and we'll just do a secondary sale in addition to us putting money at Series A and Series B. So it happens in one of two ways. One is uh, part of the new money coming into a company at Series A or Series B or beyond gets used to buy out uh, existing angels, usually at a slight discount to the round price. Uh, uh, but in the second case, if a round is oversubscribed and your incoming investors are not given their entire allocation of the round, they would then consult with the founders and say, hey, I wanted to invest half a million dollars into your Series A round. I only have an allocation of 300000 Could I buy $200,000 out of your angels directly? And if the founder is okay with that, and that happens as a, um, a secondary exit. So that typically is what happens um, with angels. And there are some angels that don't need to be bought out, and they literally can wait for seven to ten years for a liquidity event, which is either a managed, sorry, either a uh, an IPO, which is you know too far and few between, or a trade sale, or a corporate acquisition. So that's how angels make their money: either through a secondary sale, which happens often, or they play their long game and wait until an eventual exit. You mentioned that a lot of 
sort of the role of the angel investor goes beyond cash and is comes to adding value whether expertise or network or, or whatever it is um you've got a full-time job and 50 angel investments so how do you go about managing your time and managing your portfolio and you know how accessible are you to your portfolio companies yeah it is one of the things i struggle with the most um i think uh, and 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 hence the reason why, to my point earlier, it's very important to um, to tranche your angel investments over a period of time. So, as an angel, the most value that you add to a company is within the first year to eighteen months of you investing in them, right? So, you add all your networks, the corporate connections you have, the the investors that you know of. So. It's not true always, but a company that I angel invested in five years ago, I may I may have at the best an hour chat with the founders um, every three months. Someone that I invested in two months ago, I'm talking to more often, right? So because you time space it over five years, you're you're, you're helping companies that you most recently invested in. It's not to say that companies that I invested in four years ago I can't help now, but companies that I invested in four years ago likely already have a VC that's funded them, and I'm not that useful anymore. But that's 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 how you sort of space it out, which is why I said do not. You know, do all your angel investments in one go. It's the stupidest thing you'll do, and literally, people will be out there for you know a pound of flesh every time they 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 need something. Never, as an angel investor, get into a situation where you make your founders dependent on you for everything. There are there are advisors for that, right? And 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 advisors get paid for their time. Advisors get paid in in equity. As an angel investor. You're, you want to open doors to, um, to founders as quickly as you can um, and then sit back and, um, and help when you can, not at the beck and call of a founder. Angels take note. Um, what about due diligence when it comes to making an angel investment? I mean, how does that differ from sort of a VC's due diligence? Um, and uh, how is that process changing over the course of 2020 as we get into sort of zoom calls and uh and everything being virtual yeah yeah it's a very good point yeah so angel investing the the dd is far less um uh structured than vc diligence i mean vc diligence can take anywhere from a month to three to four months even longer uh at points so, so the three the three basic components of a of, of a due diligence are well four components are your financial diligence operational diligence technical diligence and legal diligence right that's why dds take so long right and most vc funds usually outsource one or more of these diligence checklists to third-party firms the most common one is having a third party to to audit the tech stack of a company that they invest in, right? Now, angels don't have the bloody time for that. So an angel is literally having, you know, a one-hour or two-hour call with the founding team. And the questions that angels really should be asking is, how big is this market? You know, what are the average margins in this industry? Who are your biggest competitors? Um, And angels get a lot of that done by investing in syndicates, right? So again, I would suggest as angels... You know, be part of an angel group where you have people with 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 varying skill sets. So even within the angel community, what you normally notice is you've got a lead angel um, that leads a syndicate, and other angels follow him or her. Um, 
that makes the job of an angel a lot easier. So as an example, if uh, let's just give a random example, let's let, let's say a company like uh, Yoko in South Africa was raising angel money three years ago, four years ago, um, you as an angel would club together with four or five other partners. One of them happens to really understand payments. They'd be the lead angel. They do a lot of the questions. And then unless something really concerning stood out, the other angels would just say, well, if John or Mary or or Vusi says so, I'm in with them. So angel investing also works better when you work with other angels through a syndicate and that one person takes responsibility for for making sure that their diligence is done. And then because that 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 role rotates between the angels depending on what sector is looked at, no one particular angel feels like they're getting the short end of the stick. Um, but from a pure DD perspective, uh, DD that angels do is mostly around market metrics and the founder's track record. Um, yeah, that would be my sort of high-level thoughts on, on the difference in DDs between the two. And how has COVID-19 effective, affected our DD processes over the last few months? Yeah, it's been tough because you can't see people in person. So that's one of the reasons why, um, as angels, I have a strong relationships with uh, relationships. Sorry, with incubators, accelerators, and uh, and 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 startup hubs. So the likes of obviously Startup Bootcamp, Endeavor, Founders Factory, uh, Google's uh, Google Launchpad, etc. There are about forty-five to fifty uh, accelerators and an even high number of incubators. So, uh, getting feedback from these sorts of support organizations makes the DD process a lot easier. Now, even in those situations, a lot of these are virtual. So, one way to um, to preempt the need to go and see founders in person is to ask them if you could speak to their suppliers or their clients. So getting customer feedback um, is one of the quickest ways to, to bypass the need to meet founders, right? Now, even in the midst of COVID, you are, as a founder, going and talking to your customers or engaging with them. So you, if, if, if you, as an investor... Um, have the opportunity to talk to to clients of founders, especially if they're business clients of founders. That's a whole bunch of DD solved before uh, before the need to go and meet the founders. And and I've done that a lot myself in the last the last nine months. And if founders are a bit reclusive when it comes to giving you access to their clients, that is a bit of a red flag that you want to take note of as an angel. There you have it, best practices for angel investing in Africa. Check out episode six of the podcast for more insights in that regard from Tommy Davis from the African Business Angel Network. Angels are playing a vital role on the continent and the importance of local investors for early stage startups cannot be overstated, especially in challenging economic times like these. In spite of those challenging times, startups continue to raise funding with innovation continuing to attract investment into Africa. One fundraiser of note in the last two weeks was FinChatBot, a South Africa-based creator of conversational AI solutions for the financial services industry, which raised the $1.6 million funding round. Launched in 2016, FinChatBot developed solutions that have become key conversation and customer service channels for most financial service providers in South Africa. The startup now services more than 20 top-tier financial service providers, including banks and insurers, 
helping to sell and service financial products with no human intervention. Its funding will be used to help the company grow its team and expand into West Africa and Europe. I caught up with FinChatBot co-founder and CEO Antoine Payusso about the round and the company's plans. You recently raised a $1.6 million round. Congratulations. Can you talk us through how that happened, why you went for it, what it means for the company? Yes, so um, we this this fundraise started about um, a, a little bit less than a year ago. Started about nine months ago, and the main goal was really to secure funding in order to support our our um, our growth overseas. We realized that obviously South Africa is an amazing market, and we continue strongly our growth on a monthly basis uh, with the team. However. The real deal for us is to be able to be a multi-market uh, startups with traction in Europe. If we get this traction in Europe, obviously for us, it's a massive uh, opportunity to grow the valuation for our um, uh, historical partners that raised um, uh, that help us to raise capital, as well as obviously um, getting into the the euros being paid in euros, the rents is uh, is quite challenging, especially uh, what happened over the past nine months from a um, money money perspective and the valuation of it compared to other um, stronger money currencies. So, yeah, I'll, um, look for other markets, getting some good traction in in euro, uh, as well as being able to recruit globally at uh, at competitive rates. Can you talk us through a little bit how you went about raising the funding, just from a procedure point of view? Yeah, so we had a whole uh, strategy around how to raise. We contacted more than 100 investors. We got about uh, 20, 30 um, uh, different VCs interested. And this is the roadshow of pitching, trying to understand what those investors want, want to hear. The traction and obviously in the middle of a COVID situation where a lot of investors were advertising that they continue doing business as usual and nothing changes. But the reality is obviously everything slowed down quite a bit. And the couple of months of COVID to prove that the business was still growing despite the crisis was critical in this uh, in this process. So, um, yeah, we contacted more than 100 uh, got interest from about 20, did a couple of mini due diligence to prove that what we were advertising was true and got interest from, from three, uh, that, uh, and then it's the usual process, uh, term sheet, um, due diligence more in depth and then terms, subscription agreement, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, receiving the money and going on holidays in Mauritius. I'm just kidding. <laughs> So as you've touched upon, uh, you're expanding into West Africa and Europe. Can you tell us uh, how you went about choosing your target markets and uh, any considerations there were specifically about uh, which markets to enter first, um, any challenges that you anticipate? 
Yeah, very good question. So the couple of markets we decided, first of all, um, as you can surely hear, I come from France. Uh, so I obviously have quite a bit of network there. Naturally, uh, specifically that also our lead investor comes from Paris. is a French investor that has a mandate. So their name is Saviu. And their mandate is to invest in Africa, in African startups. Uh, so we were we were lucky to be selected um, by by them in this uh, in this process, and we're very happy that we selected them too. Uh, so they have obviously a massive network in Paris and in Europe. So that was kind of the base of expansion that we decided to go to is using their networks to grow the 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 the, um, the business there. Uh, secondly, one of our angel investor, Richard Marsden, that invested in the business about three years ago. Um, was based in South Africa and moved to the UK. So now he's based there, uh, which helps us obviously to have a kind of a low-cost discovery strategy of the market uh, using his network, his knowledge, and the fact that he's geographically based there to start getting traction and see if we can, uh, if we can sell the solution in the UK. Um, and the last market is Portugal that we strongly believe has... Um, a really great opportunity for us uh, there. We also have a bit of network. My co-founder and business partner lives in Lisbon, speaks Portuguese. Um, so we can really get also at a fairly uh, low cost, uh, understanding better the market. And, you know, um, at, at some point we decided not to do a full uh, marketing study because uh, you can, you know, get figures, get data that costs a lot of money, that takes time to gather and so on. Um, but the, well, sometimes the best market study is actually to go on site and to launch and see and try to explain and chat and engage and get the feedbacks from the clients in order to, to see if the solution can work, if there is um, not so much competition or high competition and we should readapt a little bit our, our offering. So yeah, very much a lean strategy uh, based on the lean startup book, the blue book, as we call it, uh, between entrepreneurs. So not spending too much, really testing the market, testing the water, see where we get the best traction and then invest uh, properly in a full team that can help us sustain those first findings. This isn't the first time you've tried to expand um, I think a few years ago, you had an aborted attempt in Kenya. Can you tell us yeah. what happened then? What lessons did you learn and how are you going to approach it differently this time? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we decided um, back three years ago to start exploring the Kenyan market because of a couple of partners. We had reseller partners um, that helped us to get the first introduction and so on. And we realized quite quickly that those partners uh, needed to be well supported um, locally. So by a local team um, that we would put in place to help them sell and understand and so on. Uh, and that's where we took the decision to wait to prove more the model locally in South Africa, um, get more traction on the use case, making sure that the technology is ready to expand and, and then decide to come back. So 
uh, that's what happened and where we're going now that we have um, quite a number of successful case studies. We know how to integrate to backend system. We know how to use at its best capability the solution into a financial service uh, environment. Um, that's now we feel we're ready. We have the right operations, the right processes, the right team members to handle an exp um, um, a growth overseas. So you've spoken a bit about how being uh, your European background, your own and your co-founders, um, helps you enter new European markets. Um, to look at it the other way around, can you tell us how being uh, European expat founders in Africa um, helps and hinders your business? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if... I think there's probably a community effect that helps a lot. Um, so for my personal experience, having a French background, I managed to connect with quite a bit of French expats based here that, um, yeah, as a community help each other, right? So there is also um, quite an important government initiative uh, called the French Tech that I'm uh, involved uh, managing the Johannesburg uh, episode or, or chapter. Um, which connects entrepreneurs, big corporates, and the know-how, how to expand into France or the other around, how to expand a business from France into South Africa. Uh, so that has helped quite a bit. Um, now, as a foreigner in South Africa, uh, there are obviously uh, other challenges uh, such as obtaining the visa to be able to work in South Africa. It's not as easy as it seems. Um, uh, getting into the right, uh, you know, legality, uh, B and so on. It's uh, it's quite a challenge to, to overcome. But uh, yeah, always felt uh, South Africa is an amazing country, land of opportunities. So it's the, the right place to be. Oh, you're, you're called Finn Chatbot. But do you have any uh, plans to move into other verticals? Because I think your technology might be relevant in other spaces. Yeah, not so much, to be honest. I think we have quite a bit of work around Finn to improve and, and get better and, and help uh, big financial service providers to do a better, a better job. Um, what, what has always worked for us is to promote what we call our expertise and the fact that we know what to do for those specific use cases. Uh, and we, we don't uh, position ourselves as a software provider. We really become a partner, a partner to help drive better conversion rate, a partner to drive better customer services, better customer satisfaction. And in order to do that in a specific industry, you have to be an expert. You have to understand how what is an insurance product, how to sell it, how to educate about it, how to speak about it, how to chat about it, and so on. So, um, yeah, that's that's our positioning. We could all come from this financial industry, from different backgrounds, digital marketing, uh, call centers, um, software, entrepreneurs, uh, and we all combine our knowledge and know-how and, and, and forces together um, to help this specific industry. So we're not planning to expand into any other industry at this stage. More generally speaking, can you tell us um, what's the state of AI in Africa right now? How big is that space becoming? 
uh, as one of the first movers? Kind of where do you see the sector going in the future? For me, you know, AI is a big word that includes so many different expertise, so many different um, elements. I think for me, the the state of AI is highly dependent on where are our clients, our prospects, our um, uh, potential partners that want to buy into this technology. At the end of the day, if you have a technology that you can't sell, there's no business. And it's one of the big failure of startups, if not the, the biggest, it's a product market fit. So what I would position, how I would position the question is more what type of AI is sellable today on the, on the continent and how can we use that? And for me, it's, um, it's an AI that is highly, highly, highly customer-centric. What can impact the customer journey? Uh, because if you uh, provide some kind of an, an improved uh, customer experience, you get into the better conversion rates. You get into more bottom line impact for those corporations. And it does, it's not AI for the sake of having AI. It's AI that has an impact on the bottom line of those clients. So huge, huge opportunity. For me, it's still very early stage in Africa, the adoption. But to be honest, being in Europe now, prospecting at the moment, um, it's also early age in Europe as well. We don't, we're not so late in Africa, if you know what I mean. So, so for me, um, where it's going, it's more and more very specific niche use case applied with AI that can, that can have a strong impact and return on investment. Uh, now with all what happened with the crisis and lack of IT, um, IT budget or very, very strict um, budget spending around those kind of technology. For me, it's really about uh, finding the business cases that can prove a high return on investment with the implementation of such a technology. So high, yeah, to summarize, very specific niche type of use cases um, applied with AI, assisted by humans that can really oversee this technology and make sure it gets better over time. Um, that you can get to the, the right approach in Africa, from, in my opinion. But it's actually also, also valid for Europe from what I've seen um, uh, at the moment. Pitch the pod. Hi, my name is Amase, and I own an e-commerce platform called Luntu. Luntu gives customers the transparency to shop products that align to their values. We give them this transparency through the use of the Luntu Index, an index that shows if a business is South African-owned, Black-owned, women-owned, and or if a product is vegan, eco-friendly, organic, and so much more. We invite customers to go on to www.luntu.co to conveniently shop products from black-owned coffee to upcycled skateboards and so much more. We also invite investors to join in on Luntu and help us boost our local economy as we believe that we will very soon be Take-A-Lot's number one competitor. And remember, shop Luntu! That's 
all for this episode of Disrupt Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please remember to let all your friends and colleagues know that they can listen to the podcast on any of their favorite podcasting platforms. And we'll be back in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye.